Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. busy program ahead of us tonight don't forget you can visit that website as i said rte.ie forward slash mooney at home in malahide north county dublin richard collins i sounded a bit like marty weeder there at home <laughs> marty and here in studio aina nilana oh she's got a gift with her oh my goodness aina tomeo danaos and dona forentes isn't that what they say in latin beware of the greeks bearing gifts but you're not from greece you're all the way from Terran Ura now, but it was from County Louth. What have you got with you? I brought in show and tell like the nature table. What I have brought in <laughs> is a piece of a birch tree with some catkins on it. And I was inspired to do this by your good self. Yes, well, I explain. Do you better? Every morning, as I open my bedroom window for the last couple of weeks, a swarm of what looked like tiny insects came in the window and landed on the windowsill. And I was wondering what it is. So I looked at it and I looked online and I couldn't find anything. And I decided, huh, I'll bet Aina will know. So I took a picture and sent it to you. So let me describe it. If you imagine you're looking at it from above, a bird's eye view, it's totally flat. First of all, it is tiny, just a couple of millimetres, all right? And look at it from above. It seems to have two wings and a little body. No ears. But when I looked at it, I thought, God, it looks like a miniature bat. But it looked like something else to others. So I sent it to Aina and you said? Aina said, how long now, Derek, are you doing wildlife? And this is a plant, not a insect. Yes. What, says Derek? And I said, yes, it is, because these are the catkins of the silver birch. In fact, the downy birch have them as well. So you have your catkin, like any normal catkin. I'm just holding one up here to show to Derek. And normally, if you think of a pine cone or something like that, we have all these scales and inside each scale is actually the seed. Mm-hmm. And then the, the pine cone, the Tory top opens up and the seeds come out and you've it all left behind. But in the case of the catkin of the silver birch, the whole thing is the seed head. So each one of those comes off and in the middle of it is the seed. And on the other two sides of it, which you were saying are the wings, are actually the wings of the seed. So the yes. seed is blown by the wind. The thing in the middle is the live seed and the thing on the two outside bits are. So here they are here. Now, if I throw them up in the air in the studio, they yeah, will and fly I'll take over. a photograph so everybody can see. Oh, you won't do that, any, yeah? All yeah, right, so I'll throw them up in the air. There they are. Whee! Whee! <laughs> and they're all over the place now. But in fact, they're not moving. They're not insects. But they're being caught all over the place on spiders' webs. And there's thousands and thousands of them because every single little catkin, which is about this size, there's a catkin mm. that would have well, I know thousands what a catkin of seeds. Looks like, yeah, and yes, I would have yes. recognised it. Now I've been in this house for 22 years, and this yeah, but there seems to I've be a mast or what you call it. Some years there's more seeds than others, and this year obviously was very good for these. So that the catkins at the time, the wind one good year in 22. Well, maybe you weren't so observant before. Derek. No. Maybe you went looking out the window as you got up in the morning. Maybe you just leapt out of bed and ran out the door like, a, like an army person. saying? Tell the truth and shame the devil. Did not a lot of people contact you about this? Well, I would be doing that. I'm not Irish doing the. Times I'm not feature. doing the. Irish, I'm not doing the Irish Times feature all that long. People contacted me last year and this year about it, and sure, I'm only three years doing it anyway. But I mean, that's not the point. Sometimes years are better than others. So what you get on your birch tree is you get catkins in springtime male and female, mm. and then the pollen has to go from the male catkin to the female catkin to pollinate it. Then it's pollinated and then all the seeds come on in the autumn. So if there was something not so good in the springtime or there was terrible storms or there was no storms or there was wind or there wasn't wind, but the conditions in last spring must have been absolutely splendid, really, really good for birch, you know, it, Conditions are not really, really good every year, all yeah. the time. And maybe the tree outside your door wasn't so big before. I mean, how old is that tree? How long is it there? It's there as long as I'm there. I'm sure it was planted with the estate as part of the landscaping. Yeah. There are a lot of silver birch in the estate. In, in the estate, And there's yeah. one in my front garden, yeah. Yeah, but maybe it didn't always have catkins on it. I don't know why you didn't notice any never, other no, year. Never. All I'm telling you I've is that there it is. And, and they're, they're all over the place now. at the moment, yeah. Well, I mean, you didn't. If you didn't, you didn't. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, but I mean, there seems to be enormous amounts of this 
this year, but they're not tiny little insects, although they could be. I mean, they do look very much like a little thing with wings on each side of it, mm. like, like one of these aphidy type things, these yeah. woolly aphids and things that you get on, on plants. I mean, insects can have all kinds of shapes and carry on about them, but this one is not. It's a plant and if you gather them up and plant them, you will have forests and forests of silver birch because I presume they all start from something oh, as small as that. I don't doubt that I've ingested millions of them. Oh, well, they'll probably go inside and you know, the t- <laughs> branches coming. You'll be putting their branches all over the place. That's why I've got <laughs> silver hair. Richard Collins, speaking of silver hair in Malahide. Richard. Yes, the birch is an interesting one, all right. It's the Lady of the Woods, a beautiful tree, a gentle tree. It doesn't take all the light. When it moved in here 13,000 years ago, when the ice melted the first one in, of course, with the tiny seeds blown in the wind, is our good friend, the birch. And it doesn't take all the light. It's If you look up into a birch tree, there's plenty of light coming through. Look up into the other broadleaf trees and they tend to take everything. The result is that the stuff on the ground is able to come up under a, a birch tree, whereas it wouldn't with the others, do you see, to the same extent. But the, there is a downside to this because the pool or birch is sometimes overwhelmed by the ground vegetation, which it is allowed, has allowed to grow. The other association is with fascism. Oh, Fascist oh. comes from the Latin, the, the magistrate in ancient Rome, the lictorch carried um, a bunch of birch twigs and also a hatchet. <laughs> and this advertised the fact that the birch twigs were to symbolize the corporal punishment which would be inflicted on an offender. The axe was a reference to capital punishment. So the fascisti, Mussolini's fascisti, and the bundle of twigs was a symbol of this. So it has a little dark side, as well as being a, a lovely, gentle lady of the woods, uh, is the birch. Yeah, but can the poor old tree help what people use it for? If you were in Finland now, Richard, and you were rushing out of your sauna into the snow, you'd be rolling in the snow to cool down, and you'd be flagellating yourself with birch twigs in order to stimulate you indeed, your blood. Eh? Yes, you were. That's why I'm told I haven't been there. He's <laughs> doing these things. Or if I was, I wouldn't be telling you. But the birch twigs are used in that respect Or if as you're well. a bad boy in the Isle of Man, until mm-hmm. 1993, they'd birch you, you'd be birched. Mm. Never been it's, to a, it's a nurse tree as well. It, you use it to get other trees to grow. Plant the birch first. And it it's protects the, the other trees. It's a mixed bag tree, isn't it? Uh, you yeah, mentioned it, it, this. Because it, is, it grows, I mean, it comes first, as you said, after the ice onto the bare soil and can put up with hardship. It's a very commonly planted tree in urban areas. This is why it's on Derek's estate, because urban areas are not the, the most, I mean, they're not forests, so you have to put up with, with air quality, you have to put up with, with cement and mm. roads and footpaths and all of that. And the, the birch can, can do all of this. And then it has this most beautiful leaves and as Richard said the silver bark and the light dappling through it and this year it has millions and millions of seeds and everybody ringing up and saying what's that well now we know and you can have a look at the picture rte.ie forward slash Mooney now you'll know what it is I'm smiling at the idea you said on Derek's estate I live in an estate Aina. I don't have an estate just for the be- <laughs> benefit of being Oh I don't know how you even thought that I mean anybody else's estate is the estate where they live not the estate they <laughs> own you've, got, del- you've got delusions of grandeur Of course I have I'm here Anyway let's look at the Environmental Protection Agency because they brought out a report today and let's summarise it well they've summarised it for us in a press release Air quality in Ireland is generally good however there are concerning localised issues. Ireland met all of its EU legal requirements in 2022 but it did not meet the more stringent health-based World Health Organisation air quality guidelines. Number three, it is estimated that there are approximately 1,300 premature deaths annually in Ireland due to poor air quality from the fine particulate matter, PM 2.5. Finally, the choices we make in how we heat our homes and how we travel directly impact the quality of the air we breathe. Yes, indeed. And what we burn in our fires also does too, like burning coal. But, I mean, it's a good story in the sense that I began to sound like the man in, in, in Dawson Street for more years than I care to remember. But when I came up to Dublin first, we had 
ferociously bad air quality in Dublin City. If you went around in the bus by Trinity College or by um, the Bank of Ireland, there are limestone buildings, they were stone black hmm. from the soot and the carbon. The soot descended on them and acid rain ate into the actual buildings themselves. They cleaned those up. You'd went around by Merrion Square and you couldn't believe these eye cutting coming from the country that all these houses had enormous amounts of chimney pots in them and every one of those was a fireplace and every one of those rooms were heated up by burning coal. So the amount of coal, of carbon carbon particles because that's what smoke is smoke is unburned carbon particles you burn the fire the flames go up the flames then cool as they get up higher and that smoke and that smoke are all the unburned carbon particles that go out into the air to be breathed in and then of course the the petrol in cars had all kinds of additives in them as well there wasn't a lichen in Dublin because in the forest as I was working at the time we did a lichen survey in the 1980s Now just explain for the benefit of the listeners again about the forest Forest (laughs) Furbaha was the research body for the Department of the Environment it wasn't the Department of the Environment then that hadn't been invented. It was the Department of Local Government and Forest Forbeherd did the research in different areas for that and I was in the planning department which was doing, you know, research on on matters that helped, <laughs> I suppose, to help people who were given planning permission. So where there are rare plants there, where there are birds, where there are animals, what was there and what kind of habitats were there. All before we had the EPA, all before we had scientific importance, SACs. Mm. You know, we had barely joined Europe at that stage. I mean, we joined Europe in 73. I started working in but what, what happened was that the, the air quality got worse and worse and worse. Dublin City Council had monitors in and they would physically suck in the air like a big hoover, test it, see what was all the power, what was in it and then, you know, know how bad it was. And there were European levels that you couldn't exceed. But the, county, the local authority, the, the City Council, used to publish all these at the end of the winter in April. So you knew in April what had killed you last December which wasn't much good. And Gay Burden on his morning programme at that time took this upon himself as a crusade because he said, so there's no point in telling us what the air quality is long since. We want to know it as we go along. And he had Luke Clancy in on the programme from, he was one of the specialists in lungs and breathing and he was saying, you know, there's people dying that never died before, which he really meant was that the numbers of people dying from emphysema and all of these lung diseases were much greater than the normal average. I mean, they were above what you would expect. Excess deaths. Excess deaths, exactly, indeed. So, Forrest got in on the act and I was going round with with secondary school children they weren't even transition year hadn't happened fifth year fifth years looking at the lichens on trees lichens get all their nourishment from the air their clean air things if there's horrible things in the air the lichens won't survive they won't survive sulphur dioxide they won't survive all this smoke and I found large areas in the centre of Dublin city with no lichens at all in them absolutely none in Ballantyre interestingly none in Rathmines none all the way up as far as Fairview centre of the city no lichens on the trees none and two things happened after that first of all Forest Farber had closed down and second oh dear. <laughs> Why? Well, it wasn't to do with my air quality survey, actually, no. It was because Charlie Hawley, who was the Taoiseach at the time, decided we were all living beyond our means, we should tighten our belts, and there was cutbacks and Forest Farberha that got rid of that. That was abolished. Dublin Roads Authority were abolished, DMC. There was a whole load of things abolished at the time. So we were abolished. And the other thing that happened was that Mary Hardy, who is now taking over these environmental matters from P. Flynn, and people were being asked to change to burn smokeless fuel. And smokeless fuel burned at a higher temperature. There were no flames, there were no <coughs> smoke coming off it but you can't sell coal in Dublin City that was what she brought in the law the only way you could get a bag of coal was to go on the bus out to Bray where you could buy it or bring it home on the bus there weren't too many takers coming home with bags of coal on the bus and with one mighty pound our hero was free and the other thing that happened was we changed from the dirty old gas that was made in the gasometer down beside Ring's End you know that big gasometer mm. that they built flats in subsequently that was made from, from coal to natural gas because we found the gas field off Kinsale and then subsequently off the Corrib. And that was methane, straight methane and no coal particles, nothing. So the air quality was, we were all converted. We all got converted to the natural gas. People didn't even bother burning the smokeless fuel half the times. And from the 1998, onwards, that Clean Air Act spread. So all of those terrible things that were wrong with the air quality, there's the smoke, the sulphur dioxide, general particles and things that were in the air were all gone. They cleaned up Trinity, they cleaned up the Bank of Ireland and it never got dirty again. So the air and the the lichens came back. They're all back now indeed. So now we're looking at smaller things that are wrong and these these particles we're speaking about are in in, in the fuel of cars and they burrow into your lungs and they don't do you any good at all and certainly we shouldn't... um, 
being tolerating them in our, in our air either. But that's what this thing is saying. But the air quality compared to what it was like in the 1980s is a hell of a lot better. Is a hell of a lot better. But so still it is 1,300 a- premature deaths is not good. Anyway, you can find out more by visiting our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, last Thursday, Aina, you were at the ploughing and you made it back. I live to tell the tale I did indeed I was down on Thursday now Thursday was the third day the weather was lovely and glorious on the Chagas stand they kindly invited me down to their biodiversity section so we looked at the different types of boundaries that are around farmers fields and the different things that affect them and Catherine Keena who's the the person in charge of biodiversity in in Chagas that area had a lovely display arranged and she had a barn owl in the box in the hedge well everything was in boxes because we didn't glass boxes and this barnell got great attention and part of the acre scheme which is the new the new scheme for farmers that has replaced reps and things um, encourages farmers to put up owl nesting boxes and I was pointing out about the rat poisons causing them you know to contain rat poisons and it, 80% of our barn owls, according to John Rusby in Birdwatch Ireland, have rat poisons in them. So if the farmers were putting up their nest boxes, which the farmers, thousands of them, applied for this, and they have their nest boxes up, this was all going down very well. Anyway, I had a great time there. Because Shall we have a lovely. listen? Do. Why, why not? not? Why not, indeed. Yes, Derek, I'm here at the ploughing. It's wonderful. I'm up to my oxters and muck. I have my fur-lined wellies and I look great. And I'm here on the Chagas stand because the section of the Chagas stand as I am at is the biodiversity section. And there's a wonderful display of all the different types of hedges and boundaries that farmers might have on their land. And I have John Mahan here with me from Chagas and he can tell us more about why it's so important for farmers to have hedgerows that are good for biodiversity. Yeah, so our main message today is, I suppose, is to demonstrate all the different kind of habitats that are on farms across the country. And also, I suppose, to demonstrate that the, the nature and the biodiversity, be it animals or plants, that come with these habitats and how important it is that we maintain this biodiversity. So Acres, I suppose, is, is the recent scheme that we're looking at Tranche 2 coming down the line as well. So and Acres is actually a new scheme that has replaced reps, which pays farmers to farm in a sustainable way and with a way for that's good for biodiversity is that generally what correct, acres is correct yeah. it's, it's allowing farmers to introduce environmental measures on farms to, to I suppose work with water quality biodiversity uh, and elements like such so I suppose we're demonstrating here today the, the different hedgerows plants animals that, that, that come with these spaces and it's absolutely marvellous and people are really interested Derek because we actually have the hedges all done I mean there mustn't be a hedge left in County Tipperary the woman brought up all of the hedges so we have a hedge that may, might be around a farm and in the middle of that in the glass box is a lovely barn owl because farmers are being encouraged to put up barn owl nest boxes and how many, many farmers took that up this year more than a thousand was it? Oh I think so a lot of farmers would have um, undertaken the barn owl nest box action and put up a box somewhere around their farm over the last couple of months. One of the big problems with barn owls is that they don't have nest sites. Certainly a, a change with the acre scheme has been we're putting more targeted actions in more targeted places so generally where the barn owl nest boxes went up there was an identification by the Department of Agriculture of the presence of such barn owls in those areas the way I'm looking at Derek is that if you have a barn owl feeding young on your farm they'll be eating all the rats they'll be eating all the mice Mm -hmm. and there'll be no need to be putting out these poisons that are actually causing a huge amount of havoc and also there's the worry that rats might get immune to it and that would be the last straw altogether At the end of the day we're not trying to stop people farming we're trying to improve the environment and work alongside farming and alongside nature Great stuff. Now I'm talking to Aoife Seymour as well because she's here too and she is fully au fait with all the berries that we have in our simulated hedge. So we have red berries, blueberries, all sorts of berries. Aoife, what have we got here? Are these all native? Yeah, all the berries that are available here on the stand are native. So we've got our hawthorn berries, we have our holly, we have our Australian ash, we have rosehips. So they're all available for the wildlife here in Ireland and these are all native to our woodlands as well. And of course we have sloes, we have that gelder rose is very nice and that one with the orange middle in it, that's, that's spindle, isn't it? Yeah, that's your spindle as well, yeah. So these are all there and then you have animals then that love those berries. So what have you got? So here we have our hedgehog, our blackbird, our robin, we have our cuckoo as well. So that's all the the wildlife that's here at the moment on the stand that 
likes these berries and this is what they take in for the winter. And a lot of farmers are very positively disposed towards putting in hedges and having berries and not chopping them down in September. We only hear the bad stories of the farmers who cut everything down to the scut. But there's a huge positivity here and the sun is shining and the muck is only up to my ankles, Derek. Back to you in studio. Fantastic stuff, Aina. Thank you very much indeed. And details and links on our website, as always, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, let's say hello to Terence Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. Hello, Terry. I believe you were in Hoth the other day. Yes, I was. You'll remember a couple of years ago, after the fires in the head, I met mm-hmm. with um, Biodiversity Officer of Fingal. That was um, Hans Visser. Yes. And they were in the process of initiating a new project to target the fire hazards. And he told me that the council had teamed up with the Old Irish Goat Society. Mm. And they were introducing a herd of goats onto the head to feed on the gorse and bracken. And I was back again earlier this year, following up on the birth of this year's kids. But isn't it the rutting season now for goats? Yeah, it is, Derek. Actually, I didn't realise it. It's the same time or pretty much the same time of the year as it is with the deer in the park. Yeah. So I went back to monitor the progress of this project and to see how the goats were getting on. And I met up with Sinead Keane of the Old Irish Goat Society. Hi, Terry. We're bringing you on in. This is uh, the book barn in here. Yeah, get in out of that wind. It's very windy. It's always windy (laughs) here on Holthead. Oh, I can see one, two, three, four... Five. Five goats in here. There is. These are our book crew. They're actually just returning from deployment up in Mayo. They've been working on a gunnery site up there for the last two weeks and they're just coming back in now. So they're kind of decontaminating, I suppose you could say, because they've been working on an invasive species. So this is a control zone to make sure that we don't, um, when they're still excreting in their faeces, they could still have seed load. So we're just have them in here as a control and then they'll go back out onto Hoth. But it's just to make sure that we don't transfer any of the invasive species onto this site. Now, they're a unique breed, this old Irish goat. Tell me a little bit about them. They are. These animals arrived on the island 5,000 years ago with Neolithic settlers and as a consequence of their early arrival and the amount of time that they spent here adapting to life in Ireland, what we have now today is an animal that has really co-evolved with our climate and landscape. They're a cold weather goat, so they're fully adapted to the weather here. They actually develop and lose a cashmere layer depending on the season so that they have a nice warm insulation to prepare for the winter. Well, look at these guys here. They're fairly hairy. (laughs) They are. They are and they're coming into winter coats now, so actually we're watching their coats change and that will continue developing through the winter it's a slow enough process but they'll be for the cold season they'll be ready to go and then really in terms of diet that actually adaptation also has meant that we have an animal here who doesn't require modern inputs they can actually thrive on wild forage and they actually won't eat modern fruit or vegetables which tends to surprise people but they are a selective browser so in terms of a conservation grazing mechanism they really are an extraordinary mechanism to be using because they eat a little bit and move on and although in our project we're able to concentrate them in areas to work on fire breaks they do not overgraze once you have management and we're able to move them onto other sites. Now these five goats here are they fully grown? No we've got a couple of different ages um, in this book group here. Actually if you take a look at their horns you can actually yeah. find out the age of the animals that we're looking at because for each year of growth they develop a growth ring. So if you have a look yeah, you can, can actually see, see yeah, the lines. Yeah, yeah. That actually lets us age the goat. So um, but we have a, a couple of different ages within this little group here and those horns actually grow for their entire life. They seem very relaxed. They are. I uh, would have thought they might be itching to get back out again. <laughs> Honestly, it's a funny thing, but the boys are actually a little bit more relaxed and mellow than the ladies are. So there'd be a lot more vocalisation here if this was a female group, but the boys are very mellow. Just like humans. <laughs> I don't know about that, Terry. <laughs> and there's a lot of um, misinformation about goats. You know, they get a terrible reputation for being destroyers of the landscape but we're working with them all the time and that's just not what we see now goats are selective browsers so there's a couple of things you know when you see goats down in farmland eating grass that's symptomatic of habitat reduction goats do not want to be down eating grass it's not even a preferred diet for them so they love woody species they love eating at head height and they're also selective browsers so what they like doing um, unlike a sheep that'll graze to the ground put their head to the ground goats um, will sort of sample food and move on so you shouldn't have an intensive impact or a negative impact on on a landscape coming into the rutting season now what do you expect to see um hijinks (laughs) (laughs) well i meant with the males and the females (laughs) what happens with the males say first 
Well, yeah, they'll start jostling around now, pushing and shoving, and, and they really, it's spectacular to watch, but they rear right up onto their back legs. They probably are up at like six, seven, six feet probably in, in height when they rear up onto their back legs, and they'll run towards each other and clash horns, and the noise of that clash is, is quite something. And does um, that take place all day long or just early in the mornings? No, at this point, they're sort of just training, so they'll have a little gym session <laughs> where they're, they'll get into that activity, and then they go back to, to just grazing. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of their cycle, they're preparing for that. They're kind of they're training up and they're getting strong. And what about rest. the females then? Um, they don't bang heads for two months at all, Terry. Right. So um, what do they do? <laughs> nothing. They get on with life. They're still rearing um, right. the babies from last year. So they kind of are like still teaching them about poisonous plants. So if you're up on the headland with us, you'll hear some of the nannies kind of making a spitting sound. So they actually show the kids and are constantly teaching and training those young born with us in April of this year. You know, oh, don't touch that. There's a lot of education happening on this. While this lot are banging heads, the, the ladies are securing the future of the old Irish goat with education. And how many old Irish goats are there throughout the country? What we know is is that these animals are critically endangered. So they're at a level right now where if we didn't have the intervention of a project like ours trying to preserve them, that we would lose them. What we do know is that there's an a dramatic reduction in terms of what the numbers are. We know that in the 1800s that there was 265,000 animals at least in this country and we know that because that was around the amount that were exported to the UK. Uh, what we have today is potentially sort of around the four, three to 4,000 animals remaining based on what we do know about the existing herds or the remaining herds. It's but a big drop, isn't it? It's absolutely colossal. We did a piece of study looking at the Irish place names around the country and it, it's a beautiful piece to get a picture on where the previous distribution was because, of course, back when these places got their names and the only goat that was on the island was the old Irish goat. And so there's over 209 place names on the OSI maps that are connected to the goat. So there's a couple of goat-related terms within that. There's obviously Gower, which everybody kind of knows that one, but uh, Minshock for Nanny, Mianon for uh, Goat Kid, Pukon and Pikachu for Buck. And when you look at that map, you get to see that these animals used to be all over this island. So, you know, there's been a really significant destruction of their population over the last 200 years. When you let them out in the morning, they'd go on their, their merry way around Hoth Head. Do they all stay together or do they break up into groups? The boys here, the girls there, the babies over there? Our project is managed by a virtual fencing system. So the goats, before they get deployed onto their individual sites, they actually get trained onto a virtual fence. So instead of seeing a physical boundary, they'll get an auditory warning and they understand that when they approach a perimeter, even though they can't see it, that it means that they need to stop and turn back. But we have groups working and they don't, they're not free roaming. They're not just wandering around the headland. They're working within projects with, within these virtual fencing. So sometimes the virtual fence paddock will be literally like a channel because it'll be a corridor for a fire break. And sometimes it'll be a different uh, shape or size because they're actually reducing biomass. The system is hugely effective for managing these animals. They're so intelligent. They understand the system. As long as we make sure that they have enough food and they have enough water and they feel safe, they are high compliant with that system and we make sure that they they do have all of those things the other reason why the virtual fencing is such an incredible piece of technology for us to be using is that it allows us to create exclusion zones within the paddocks so that means if we find vegetative succession saplings or plants that are noxious like rhododendron we can actually create areas that the goats can't enter within the paddock so it's a hugely enabling piece of technology Now, Holt Head can be a very populated area, particularly in summertime when the weather is good. How do the goats then interact with humans? Well, they're curious, but they're also quite elusive. So our animals will be very different depending on which humans are present. So with ourselves, they're used to us and they'll kind of approach, especially with Melissa. Now, Melissa is the, the goat herder. She is. Melissa manages as our project manager here in Hoth, on Hoth Head for the Hoth Goat Grazing Project. Over the last two years then, how successful have the goats been? Well, it's been a it's been a, a hugely successful project, both in terms of um, I think how the social enrichment for the people of Hoth, the goats are incredibly happy. Uh, they this is goat country. You can see how hilly it is. This is an area where man and machine would really struggle to manage the land, but for the goats, they make light work of it. And then they're so nimble footed, they don't contribute to soil erosion, so they're able to enrich the environment while they're here. In terms of the real task that they're here for, which is fire mitigation and reducing the threat of fires in Hoth, 
they thankfully have been successful so far. It's a system that needs to be maintained, though. You know, I mean, it's not a quick solution. And so, you know, we hope that Hoth will remain to be their home for a long time. There's well, it was initiated as a, a three-year strategy. So you're going into year three now. When that year is over, what do you hope for them for the future? It, it's a very large headland and it like it does have some, some topography challenges in terms of how the land could be managed in a gentle way. The great thing about having the goats here is it's a gentle management. You know, it's you know, we don't even need to put up fences to control the animals and the landscape um, has a natural solution to manage this issue. You refer to this as conservation grazing. Yes. What is conservation grazing? Well, it's really a strategy of restoring the landscape, using a grazing animal to do so. The idea of using animals is to offer a more natural process, especially in places like Hoth, where what we have here is a a large amount of heathland. Livestock have been removed from that area, and in the situation of Hoth, it's allowed plants like bracken and gorse to overtake. And the problem there is, is that you end up with an ecologically non-diverse environment. Mm. So the goats are able to challenge and and offer to rebalance that landscape. The idea will be that really what we want to do is increase the biodiversity here through a number of different mechanisms, but the goats are a part of that strategy, and then rehabilitate the landscape. And and it's working? It is working. Yeah, it's great. There's some really good signs that this strategy is going to be very effective here. Um, I suppose the reality is is the challenges that lie ahead of all of us right now is can we rehabilitate different types of habitats? Can we restore them to a high level of functioning or a good level of functioning might be a more reasonable ask at the moment so that they can coexist and support each other? You know, it's about a balance of habitats. I mean, you know, we do need more trees coming into these environments. We all know that, but not every environment is ready for trees. In Hoth, the only thing that was altering the landscape here was the burn cycle. And so we weren't seeing vegetative succession. And and this was an an ecology-led project from the start. This mechanism was suggested by ecologists. And can you see this project being rolled out in other parts of the country? I think the goats um, have the potential to be hugely useful in rehabilitating and restoring environments, particularly in some of the upland areas. This is actually a job that the goats have been doing for for millennia here. People ask us quite regularly, it was a genius idea coming up with conservation grazing for goats. Who came up with that idea? The goats did, is the answer. And so really what we're doing is we're returning a natural mechanism. We're just adding management. That's all we're really doing here. We're keeping an eye on them. We're taking care of them. And obviously we're combining what is a really ancient technology, the goats themselves, with modern technology in terms of the management system with the virtual fencing. Thank you very much indeed. Terence Flanagan and Sinead Keane from the Old Irish Goat Society. More details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now let's play a little game. It's called Hooray for Hollywood! I was having a look at the top 50 movie quotes of all time the other day. Not particularly scientific, but let's see how many you remember. I'm just going to give you the top five ahead of our next item. Don't worry, it'll all make perfect sense in time. Here we go. At number five. Elementary, my dear Watson. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from 1939. At number four. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. From Dead Poets Society, 1989. At number three, I'm the king of the world. Remember that one. Titanic, 1997. Number two, there's no place like home. From The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy clicked her heels, 1939. And in the number one spot, I can't believe it, but anyway, here we go. The Force be with you. (laughs) Excuse me. Star Wars 1977. I have to say, I was genuinely surprised when the quote I'm going to play for you now did not appear in pole position. Because in 1975, 
It scared the life out of me And I'll bet I wasn't alone You're going to need a bigger boat You're going to need a bigger boat Chief Brody He wasn't wrong I was afraid to have a bath after seeing that movie Come to think of it, I'm not sure if I was more scared by the shark in Jaws or the music. But despite the horror and terror it inflicted on somebody as innocent and as impressionable as I was in 1975, it didn't put me off them. Sharks are among the most fascinating and compelling of all creatures on Earth. Whether in film, an aquarium or in the wild, we find them as mesmerising as they are formidable. And when we think of one, we probably imagine a great white shark or a tiger shark. But can fearsome tales divert from a complex and secretive story which goes back some 450 million years and has survived five mass extinctions? What, for example, did sharks look like in their early evolutionary history? What makes them such effective predators? What would our oceans be like without them? These questions and others are explored in a new book. It's called The Lives of Sharks and it examines shark physiology, anatomy, behaviour, ecology, evolution, as well as conservation and the impact of human activity on shark populations. Daniel Abel is a co-author and also professor of marine science at the Coastal Carolina University, from where he spoke with our own Dr. Richard Collins earlier. I'm in coastal South Carolina, which is in the southeast Atlantic coast of the U.S., in a lovely little bucolic setting called Polly's Island. Um, there is a storm churning a few hundred miles off our coast and it's creating some rough weather out here and you know, I had to cancel one of my cruises because of that uh, cruise schedule actually for today and for tomorrow. Um, but otherwise, it's a very beautiful time of year here. The tourists are leaving, uh, the fall weather is kicking in and the sharks are plentiful in the two ecosystems uh, where I study them. Daniel, congratulations on a beautiful book which does a great deal to dispel many of the myths about sharks. Sharks, it seems to me, have an image problem. For one thing, we're inclined to think that all sharks are very big, the top of the food chain, apex predators, the sort of Ivan the Terribles of the sea rushing around, gobbling everything up, mindless, brutish, terrible creatures. And also we think that they threaten us in some way. People will sunbathe and risk getting melanomas, but yet they will not be afraid to go into the water lest a shark be in there and eat them. And you booked us a great deal to dispel those things. How big is the normal, the typical shark? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Richard, for that outstanding introduction. You pretty much summarized the book. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this magnificent group of beasts. Yeah, so people think, uh, when they think of a shark, they think of a great white shark or a tiger shark, perhaps a reef shark. And those aren't typical sharks. Those are large sharks. But the fact is, um, there's about 550 or so species of sharks, a number that grows every year. And more than two-thirds of them um, are no larger than three and a half feet or a meter. So most sharks are small. And, and the other myth is that most sharks are living in the shallow coastal waters when, in fact, over half the species live in an environment that most of us will never see, which is the deep sea. It's a successful formula that they invented 500 million years ago or something like that. They decided on a particular technology. And is it largely the same since then? Has it changed much? You know, that, that's a great question. I, you know, I teach a biology of sharks course here at Coastal Carolina University, and I just posed that question to my students. The way I posed it was, are sharks living fossils? And, you know, a living fossil is basically an animal or a plant, an organism that's basically unchanged from its early evolutionary form. And the answer to the question that you posed and to, to the question I just said is yes and no, that early in their evolutionary history, they settled on a body form and a predatory lifestyle that worked for them in 
and you know evolution doesn't tinker with things that work and so it's persisted to this day but no there have been some changes the the jaws for example of sharks have loosened a little bit enabling them to have that big gape that we see on some of the television shows and movies um, and their fins have become a little more mobile they can turn a little bit better than they they, they used to be just very rigid in early evolutionary history so yeah so sharks are evolutionary old group but they're advanced in many ways now there's a great competition going on between them who are cartilaginous they have cartilage the kind of stuff of the outer ear is made of kind of flexible plasticky material or the bulb of the nose against the bony fish the bony fish are going along parallel to them they both survived but is it better to be bony than to be cartilaginous if you have the option of being born as a fish so would I rather be a, a shark or a bony fish? I think most people would want to be uh, at the top of the food chain. Um, you know, there are 38,000 kinds of bony fish, and anybody who studies fish is in awe of bony fish. The color, shape, sizes, just like on a coral reef. So sharks, at, it's you know slightly under 550 species, are a less biodiverse group. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But uh, that doesn't mean they aren't important ecologically, if at least as important, if not more important. And the, the diversity among those 541 species is pretty immense. One piece of technology the bony fish have developed and the sharks haven't is the swim bladder. The swim bladder is a very clever device, it seems to me. You can adjust your body density effectively depending on where you are. If you're descending deep, you can put out more or put out less gas into the swim bladder. And so you can be you have a more restful existence. Now, the shark can't do that. And I have read somewhere that they have to keep swimming all the time because they'll sink to the bottom if they don't. And if you are sleeping on the bottom trying to rest, you'll have to have a current flowing over your gills, otherwise you won't have enough oxygen. Are these myths valid? In part. I mean, if you're an oceanic shark, like an oceanic white tip or a blue shark, yeah, then you must keep swimming because they have muscle-bound bodies. And, you know, sharks are slightly envious of bony fish and having that internal balloon. In fact, there's a single shark that has decided evolutionarily to emulate bony fish. And I'm talking about a sand tiger. In fact, I read that a small-toothed sand tiger was recently found washed up on Irish surf shores. And this is a fish that's more more commonly in the in Mediterranean. And this group actually takes gulps of air from the surface and has an airzatz swim bladder. So there are benthic sharks, about 40% of benthic sharks. They don't require you know, a current to be flowing past them. They have have gill musculature and benthic means bottom associated and so many of them are nocturnal they sleep during the day like the horn shark or the port jackson shark and they're able to pump sufficient water over their gills to oxygenate so so you know for some sharks yeah they're, they're not neutrally buoyant no shark is neutrally buoyant except the deep sea shark that is almost neutrally buoyant but for most of them they're heavier than water because of their mu their muscle band um, and they need to to swim in order to uh, to not sink is not having a swim bladder holding them back. The animal with the swim bladder can venture into places where the one without it can't. It is able to roam widely and exploit different habitats and so on and so forth. Is the shark more constrained by the fact that it hasn't this diving suit air tank thing available to it? Well, it's certainly limited some of the niches that a shark can speciate into, uh, like on a coral reef. And I'm sure you've been in a coral reef before and seen the immense diversity of forms occupying practically any livable space there in really small forms. And so not having a swim bladder means that, you know, a shark can't be small. And second of all, it can't hover. And so all these beautiful spaces that damselfish and angelfish and other bony fishes have occupied aren't available to, to sharks. Now, on the other hand, sharks went in a different direction. And again, only 550 species compared to 38,000, um, but ecologically important and just a different overall lifestyle and equally successful in their own right. Well, we shouldn't compare them too critically. After all, the sharks tend to be close to the top of the food chain. And as you go up, the 
possibilities for diversity probably go down. Now, the other great uh, innovation of the sharks is internal fertilization. The bony fish, for the most part, I think almost in all cases, are external fertilizers. This is a very radical change between the two and the internal fertilization generates a different approach to young and to the rearing of young than does the other. Would you develop that a bit for us? Certainly. One of the key characteristics of the group to which sharks belong, the cartilaginous fishes, is a modification of their pelvic fins, the paired fins on the underside towards the rear, called claspers. And Aristotle actually noticed these these early on, um, although he thought they were used to hold on to the female. They're only in males. And they're used to hold on to the female and they would fertilize the eggs externally. Instead, sharks fertilize internally. And what that means then is that there's more hospitable place for the development of the early embryos. And rather than depositing 3 million or 4 million eggs or so like a pollock or a bluefin tuna, um, sharks have fewer young. So it's a completely different life history strategy that, that would produce larger young that are more capable of fending for themselves, but only a few of them. And this has worked to the disadvantage in, in contemporary you know, society where human insults can drastically reduce population sizes and without the ability to have millions of eggs, sharks can't recover very quickly. So sharks in general have very slow life history characteristics and a lot of them associated with internal fertilization. That female sharks that carry their young are bigger than, than males. Um, they're, they're slow growing, they're long lived um, and they produce these young that, that they carry around with them um, for deep sea sharks potentially three years. I mean, it's a really long gestation period. Um, but for most sharks, it's, you know, it's a year and, and they don't even reproduce every year. So bony fish, again, there, you know, there are a few bony fish that, you know, if you have an aquarium and you have some mollies or guppies, uh, they fertilize internally um, and then they produce small live young. And then there's a few sharks. They all fertilize internally. Not all are born live from the mother. Some, um, like the horn sharks and the cat sharks, actually lay eggs. But in all cases, the young are born at a more advanced stage than uh, bony fish are. So in a funny, odd sort of way, they are more like us. We produce a few young and we look after them, whereas lots of creatures produce a vast number of young in the hope that the odd one will make it through. Now, the sharks are a bit like us. They seem to mind their, at least when they're on board the mother. So it's a curious uh, reflection that this creature that we consider so alien has this parallel with us. So what would you say? Yes, in fact, uh, you know, when I, when I give lectures on uh, ecology and life history of sharks, I, you know, I say w they have more mammal-like characteristics. Um, that, you know, a, a shark it probably is closer to an elephant in terms of its life history characteristics than it is to a to a bony fish. And you know, it's an interesting parallel that, that there's no parental care in sharks once the animal is born. But there's an enormous amount of parental care when they're having to carry around the young for one, two, or even three years. So that's a yeah, very, very interesting comparison with, with humans. Now, when we come to the mental side of sharks, um, they seem to do rather badly. I know that lemon sharks have been trained to press buttons and things, and there are one or two other examples of sharks. They can learn a little, but they will never produce the complete works of Shakespeare equivalent in the fish world or a theory of relativity or anything like that. They seem to be very limited in that regard. Small brains, limited in what they can can develop and do. Is that a fair judgment? Um, well, I mean, you also describe me as well. I'll never produce the, the works of Shakespeare. But now, no, they don't have small brains. They actually have relatively large brains, right in the middle of the, you know, of the vertebrate range of brain sizes. But they're not the, the, the parts of the brain that are large are those associated with the sensory environment, so associated with, with vision or, or smell or hearing. So, they, so their brain size is not that small. But on the other hand, they, they aren't capable of higher order kinds of behaviors, um, but they exhibit surprisingly complex behaviors. Um, you know, they have different personalities. Uh, people who dive with tiger sharks will 
tell you that there's some that are aggressive and some that are shy. And having a mixture of these personalities uh, may be protective in the long run. It protects shyer sharks from from dangers of risk taking. So they, you know, not necessarily a big tiger shark, but another kind of shark that might be exposed to more predators. And sharks are the biggest predators of other sharks. And it rewards bolder bolder sharks with food. So it's interesting that, that there should be a mix of personalities. And then cognition or learning, as you pointed out to, um, does occur. And uh, to me, the, the best example, um, which incorporates my favorite musical genre and my favorite, one of my favorite sharks, is the Port Jackson shark. And in one set of experiments, it learned to bite at bubbles emanating from an underwater aerator when it heard jazz music. So they are fairly cultural. So you had to play jazz music. If you played any other kind of music, it wouldn't respond at all. It was demonstrated this, statistically demonstrated that this is the case, that if you play a certain type of music, a certain sound, they will do this, they will eat the bubbles, but not if you don't. Is that true? Well, I have to give a cap. This isn't work I did, so this is this is basically a research that I read about. It's it, apparently they just learned to recognize jazz. Uh, however, they could not distinguish it from from blues. Apparently, so they they were somewhat dilettantes in the uh, in the musical realm. Still, it's an amazing development. Now, the other side of learning, for instance, the two best known sharks where I live are the basking shark and of course the great white which Derek and I went to see on two occasions and went into the cages with them and that these are the best known sharks in this part of the world they both indulge it seems in huge migrations I think you mentioned in the book a migration from Africa from Dyer Island all the way to Australia and back by a white shark now that must require memory uh, uh, learning of various kinds it can't just be a random thing. Surely they have learning in another sphere to what we think of as learning. Yeah, I would, no, I would agree with that. And, and but they also navigate. I mean, they've you know that's a learn, maybe a learned or maybe an innate behavior. But they're 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 using the Earth's geomagnetic field. At least that's the the best guess. One of my former students, Brian Keller, um, demonstrated that with bonnethead sharks for one of the first times that they that they're able to to navigate based on sensing the Earth's geomagnetic field. You know, sharks sharks migrate for a variety of reasons. Uh, along our coast, we study them. They migrate for a food reason. Reasons and also for, for you know to, for environmental reasons to get into either warm or cold water depending on the sharks, but yes, it's it's clearly requires some sort of processing that we might not give them credit for to be able to to make those enormous migrations that if you look at tracks of tagged animals seem to be along the same pathways. There's, you know, there are some wrong way sharks and we, we've tagged a bunch of them and, and most of them will go one way and one will go the other. But, um, but for the most part, the, you know, the migrations are stereotypical. Is this more a reflection on them? They don't need to drive all the way to Australia for a I think of the energy demand of going all the way to Australia and coming back. Surely the budget doesn't justify it in terms of the number of fish, the extra number of fish you will get by going to Australia for a while and coming back. Is it that they fail to realize that there's much better resources, much nearer that they could exploit? Is it a reflection on them rather than a, a virtue that we see in them? That opens up a wide variety of questions about why. I mean, you know, scientists don't typically ask the question why, but we can do it, you know, in, in this sense. Uh, why an animal does anything it does. And a typical white shark that weighs about two, 2,000 pounds, about 1,000 kilograms, eats about 40, 40 pounds of prey a day, about 18, 18 kilos of prey a day. You know, it doesn't have to do it every day. It can store up, uh, you know, the the value to that shark of migrating that far is apparently known only by the shark that, that did it. There may be alternate pathways. And, it, you know, it also points out questions about about the evolution of behaviors and structures. And, you know, we, we can't always understand the selective forces that led an animal in one direction versus another. So I guess all that is, is a long way of saying, um, I'm really not sure if there's a better way for the white shark to do what it, what it did. Daniel, it's been wonderful talking to you and thank you very much for a superb book. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and maybe I look forward to meeting in person down here where you can see the wondrous Winyah Bay ecosystem and our beautiful sandbar sharks. Oh, it'd be wonderful.
Wonderful indeed. Thank you very much indeed to Richard Collins, Aina Nilana and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating. And for the last time, for now at any rate, I want to say thank you to our researcher, John Bella Riley, because John is moving from Mooney Goes Wild after eight years and going to Liveline. So Joe Duffy, our loss is your game. Good luck, John, and thank you for all the hard work. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash million. Till next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.